This business news podcast is supported by Hopgood Gannam Lawyers. Our knowledge and expertise has been delivering exceptional outcomes for nearly 50 years. All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon, it's Jacinta Burton with your Friday afternoon headlines. Griffin Cole has delayed a control bid by power generator Blue Waters after a mystery creditor emerged with a rival plan. Amid revelations, the miners' debts could be close to $1 billion US dollars. Blue Waters had sought to appoint Quartermenthas Richard Tucker to take control of the Collie miner following major disruptions to the coal supply needed to run two of the state's baseload electricity generators. On Wednesday, Griffin launched an 11th-hour Supreme Court bid to temporarily stop the appointment of a controller, but the matter made a surprise return to court today, where it was revealed that another creditor was seeking to appoint a controller. Blue Waters' lawyer Joseph Garris told the court it had reviewed fresh affidavits referencing a staggering $954 million US dollar liability it was unaware of until now. He said Blue Waters was concerned it would end up being hamstrung, unable to step in and take possession of the assets if an alternate receiver was appointed in the interim. He requested the court release the company from its earlier undertaking not to act and dismiss the injunction application, insisting it was effectively being left in limbo. But Griffin's lawyer Conrad de Curloy managed to convince Justice Jennifer Smith to hold off on any decision until at least Monday. And in property news, the management of AMP Capital's retail assets will be transferred to an external party after the group relinquished control of its retail portfolio. Sydney-based fund manager GPT Group, in line to take control of AMP's retail assets, will manage its largest WA shopping centre in Carinup. An AMP spokesperson confirmed the Carinup move, which took effect yesterday, near the expected completion of AMP Capital's sale. In addition, it's understood Dexas will manage AMP's Ocean Key shopping centre from October 1. AMP Capital entered a brief trading halt this morning as it awaited a decision to transfer the management of its 2.76 billion AMP Capital Retail Trust to an external entity. In April, Dexas announced it would purchase AMP Capital's Collimate real estate and infrastructure equity business, comprising about $31 billion of assets under management. Shares in AMP were down 0.86% this afternoon to trade at $1.16. And Strike Energy shares slipped 10% after the company announced a $30 million capital raising from institutional and sophisticated investors to progress projects. Shares were offered to investors at 23.5 cents apiece in a placement led by Euros Hartleys and Bell Potter, pushing its share price down more than 10% to 25 cents on the market this afternoon. Proceeds from the raise are set to tide strike over until first cash flows from the whaling gas project are received as well as fund the purchase of more land for its proposed fertiliser development, Project Haber. That project was awarded major project status by the federal government earlier this year. And coming up next, journalists Jordan Murray and Matt McKenzie talk about what's come out of the Jobs and Skills Summit, including productivity and wages, increasing the skilled migration cap and the return of industry bargaining. Hopgood Gannam Lawyers is one of Australia's leading independent legal advisory firms. For nearly 50 years, our knowledge and expertise has delivered exceptional outcomes for our clients, giving them the most accurate, appropriate and usable guidance. 
We invest time and expertise to build trusted alliances with our clients and to understand their commercial drivers, which enables us to deliver over and above what a traditional legal firm offers. To find out what we can do for you, visit hopgoodganum.com.au. Hopgood Ganim Lawyers. Exceptional outcomes. Welcome back to At Close of Business. I'm Jordan Murray, and as always on Friday, I'm joined by senior journalist Matt McKenzie. Matt, how excited are you this afternoon to be here with me? I'm excited to be summiting with you on jobs and skills, Jordan. We're going to be getting to the top of that summit over the course of today's discussion when we talk about the Jobs Summit. Now, at the time of recording, this is Friday afternoon, so we'll be discussing mostly what was raised on Thursday and parts of Friday morning, not the entirety of the Jobs Summit. Uh, But we will get into the meat of the discussions that were had over the course of those two days and analyse some of the big ideas that have already come out of it. Before we do that, though, Matt, there were some comments from the National Chamber of Commerce leader, particularly to do with inflation and wage growth. Tell me about that. Well, what I can read from, uh, it was a Bloomberg that published this, what I ascertain is that he says something to the effect of um, that we can't really let wages growth chase inflation. Um, Now, I'm not sure I 100% agree with that because uh, w- wages growth. We're talking about if we're talking about nominal wages growth, really that you would want that to be matching inflation. And I know people will be concerned about a wage price spiral, and we'll get to that in a second. You'd want it to be at least matching inflation, um, and then of course you want to have real wage growth as well, which is driven by productivity. No debating that. But the idea that wage growth should be below inflation. Um, for whatever reason, I think is a bit incorrect because if wage growth is below inflation, that's really in real terms, a real wage cut. Um, now, would anyone be making the argument that the economy is somehow less productive than a few years ago? What would the nurses and aged care workers say about the idea that, oh, we've become a lot less productive? I mean, they've been working incredibly hard, as have so many others, teachers and others. So um, I don't think it's fair to say that real wages should fall. And if you're saying that wage growth should not match inflation, then you are in effect saying that real wages should fall. Um, so I disagree with that assertion. Now, people, again, people are concerned about a wage price spiral. I've said this before. I'll say it again. There can really be no wage price spiral if money is sufficiently tight and if the federal budget is in order. Um, because if what you're saying is you want to put downward pressure on wages um, because you don't want interest rates going up too much, you don't want inflation getting out of control and interest rates going up too much, well, that's great if you're a borrower. It's not necessarily great if you're a wage earner. Um, So there's a bit of an economic and moral debate around that. But uh, we hope that we can get inflation under control. The Reserve Bank and the federal government will need to start, well, they have started and they'll need to keep working on that. Um, But the idea that uh, we we should just let real wages fall because we don't want wages to chase inflation uh, would seem to be foolish. The other point, people seem to be a little bit confused about why, why wage growth isn't matching inflation. Um, And there's been a lot of discussion about this. It's very simple. The reality is that people only get a pay rise once a year. Um, And it might be at the end of a calendar year or it might be um, at the end of a financial year or whatever it is. But um, back in, you know, July last year or September last year, there was much less concern about inflation. And then in December, it got worse in Perth. And then in March, it got worse. And then we got to June and July, it's getting even worse. Uh, And of course, most people in the economy, unless you've switched jobs, your pay was probably the same almost everybody, your pay would have been almost the same over that period. So, of course, when inflation goes up, your wages go down in real terms. And then for the next year, it might well be the case um, that that continues, um, but eventually you'll get to a point where 
um, if we start to see inflation expectations really get baked in, that wages will be growing to match them because people will be very frustrated if they do not. Um, and I just think that's worth highlighting. And I just add to that that if you're on an EBA for many for a multi-year EBA, well then. Um, it might be even longer before your wages can catch up to the higher level of inflation. Um, and so, ironically, people talk about collective bargaining being the thing that's going to be fantastic for getting higher wages and such. But if you're on a multi-year EBA deal, you'd actually be waiting. If you signed it in December 2021, for example, you'll be waiting quite a long time before your wages move to catch up to inflation. Um, so that's why the wages in real terms are falling, it's because wages are sticky um, and they don't move immediately when consumer prices move. Um, and it's something that will hopefully work out in favour of workers over the next year or two, but that's the explanation, Jordan. Now let's get into the bones of the summit, the Jobs and Skills Summit. And I must admit, Matt, and we've spoken about this outside of the podcast, I don't know what I thought about this going into it. And I must admit that I was on my, my words either last week or a fortnight ago and I was being... Uh, somewhat sneaky and a bit uh, cheeky when I was talking about the 2020 summit that Kevin Rudd had uh, back in, I think it was 07 or 08, uh, and particularly the unwieldy nature of it. You know, what was it? A couple of thousand people were there. People were sitting on the floor and really? exchanging bizarre ideas. Wow. And I think as well, Hugh Jackman and Kate Blanchett were there to lead the creative stream of the 2020 summit. So obviously a lot of stuff that seemed to be silly and it seemed to be preoccupied with navel gazing. Wolverine. Wolverine. <laughs> he'll, he'll claw down inflation. <laughs> I wish there was a Kate Blanchett film I could think of. Um, but I, I must give credit to that summit in retrospect because between doing that podcast and between coming to today's episode, um, I went back and I purchased a copy of Faction Man, which is David Marr's excellent book on Bill Shorten and the way in which he operated. Um, and one of the most interesting things to come out of that book, and I guess which I didn't really appreciate at the time when I was talking about the 2020 summit, was that the National Disability Insurance Scheme came out of that summit. That was one of the ideas that was put forward and it obviously went through and was legislated and it's now a part of our uh, social welfare fabric. Uh, there were some other really interesting ideas when I went back and looked at the document. There was the Australian National Preventative Health Agency, which has since been ceased and repealed. And there was also some interesting ideas around Australia moving to become a republic, constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians, honest and open government, all policies that I think the current federal government is occupied with and looking to uh, legislate. So, uh, you know, I, maybe I'm giving a bit of a bum steer. Maybe there were some good ideas that came out of it. Of course, it probably wasn't quite as urgent as the Prices and Income Accord, and that was largely because the economic issues weren't as pressing then. I believe the 2020 summit was meant to be a bit ambitious and a bit unwieldy in its structure, whereas that particular summit in 1983 was preoccupied with high levels of unemployment, high levels of inflation, etc., and supply-side reform that can follow on from that. There were some interesting comments that came from Daniel Wood and Ross Garneau, at least in my view, and I particularly appreciated some comments from Ross Garneau, in, in light especially of what Don Perrottet and Matt Keane were saying during the week about this just being a union powwow. I thought it was good to have economists there making the case for workers getting wage increases and making a case for workers. And particularly, Ross Garneau made this interesting point that, you know, on the face of it, there is a good case for businesses to have high unemployment because it makes them more competitive. They get to set wages and conditions for workers and they get to take their picking at the labour market. Uh, but he made the really interesting case, and I must admit, I'd never thought of this, but that when you have higher employment 
Uh, a lot of those people who would ordinarily be outside of the workforce, they wouldn't be particularly appealing to hire because they've lost skills that they would have lost over time through not being in a job. They retain those skills, they're more productive as a result of it, and they make for better employees and you're not losing productivity growth through people leaving the workforce. So I thought that that was really interesting. Upon reflection from day one, September 1st, the Thursday, uh, what are some of your key takeaways? In particular, I know you were interested in talking about multi-employer bargaining, which we might get to in a minute, but what were your takeaways from last day? Well, there was the big announcement about uh, more TAFE uh, positions, um, which is, uh, it's not so much an outcome of the summit, but an announcement timed at the same time at the summit, but it was welcomed. And I think, as uh, you're speaking about migration, there was the announcement today about um, increasing the migration cap. Uh, so, again, an announcement timed at the same time, but I think something that a lot of people at the summit seem to genuinely vibe with. Um, I heard some good things. I heard some negative things. I want to leave the all and some questionable things, perhaps. Um, one of them was uh, that it was Danielle Wood, who you mentioned earlier, um, who said something to the effect of, uh, you know, increasing participation of women in the economy, um, you know, it would be it would get far more attention and be far more subsidised if it was an iron ore deposit that the government was trying to bring online. And I think it's just worth me saying, right? Of course, women's participation is important, but it's just worth me saying. When was the last time you you remember an iron ore deposit being subsidised? The answer that I come to is cool your knobbing, um, and that wasn't to bring it online. It was subsidised because the company was about to leave. And Mark McGowan was very concerned about Esperance port workers. So one can have their debate about that. Uh, but it's not like, you know, Rio and BHP are out there getting massive subsidies for their iron ore mines. Um, one subsidy that does actually exist is the childcare subsidy, which this financial year and the three financial years that follow in the federal government's budget, this is the Morrison-Frydenberg budget because the Labor government haven't done their update yet, $46 billion over those four years for childcare subsidies. So, yes, it is important that we encourage participation, right, from, from women, and it's a big opportunity we can unlock for the economy. But let's not engage in this kind of snarky business about, oh, well, we'd subsidise it if it was an iron ore deposit. It's very clear that society really does value the, the role of childcare and the important role that it can have in bringing people into the workforce. For, workforce, $46 billion is a lot of money. Um, and uh, something else which was, which was interesting, I think it was the resources minister who said uh, that childcare in regional areas and, and fixing sexual harassment in the resources industry would encourage more women into the resources industry. And no doubt um, fixing sexual harassment would contribute to encouraging women in the resources industry. But I wonder if um, there, must be a more, there must be more problems than just that because we've really only become aware of just how bad those issues have been um, in the last couple of years, we've had a very interesting parliamentary inquiry, which had some quite staggering revelations from it. But th there has been improvements over the last maybe decade, let's say, in, in terms of women's participation in the resources industry. Um, so there are positives there. Uh, the one I wanted to talk about in that case, though, was the childcare again, um, saying we need to have better childcare in regional areas. Well, just to be clear about this, is the lack of women in the resources industry because of a lack of childcare in Leonora if you're FIFOing out to a mining camp 100 kilometres out of town? Or maybe it's that the, ch the way that we think about childcare does not accurately reflect what a woman working in FIFO might actually need. If you're a single mum wanting to go into FIFO, you'll be away from your home for two, for two weeks at a time. Um, so, one, so here's an idea that should be at the Jobs and Skills Summit, and maybe it did come up and I've missed it, but how do we rethink childcare 
um, so that it can support women in those circumstances, the single mum who wants to go out from Forest Field and work FIFO for two weeks on and two weeks off. Um, that will have far more consequence, I would say, um, than childcare and regional centres, because as it happens, most people working in resources don't actually live in regional centres. And even if you did provide more childcare, they wouldn't necessarily want to move there because there's a whole range of other problems. So there's a little bit more to think about there. Um, and then I do want to get into some comments from Rob and Denham, which I thought were great, but we'll come back to that a little bit later. Now, referring specifically to this topic of um, a high migration cap, Jordan, you had some thoughts. Yes, and I believe that the cap has been increased. Uh, again, I don't know if that's as a direct result of this summit. I anticipate that it was just timed at the same time as the uh, as the summit was being held because it had been prefaced for weeks ahead of time, as is the case for many of the things that have been announced at this summit. But nevertheless, uh, migration seems to be one of these things that's cited as a panacea for dealing with every problem within the economy. And I think, again, going back to Professor Garneau was saying last night about the state of migration in Australia and the way in which we think about it, and particularly the way in which we think about it in regards to the labour market, there was an interesting piece of research from the Gratton Institute that made some interesting conclusions. Now, I believe this was done late last month in August, uh, and one of them was that uh, new permanent skilled visas will just be allocated to people who are already on temporary visas. So that doesn't mean that you get more people from offshore. It means that the people who are currently here who might otherwise leave stay. So that doesn't add any additional space. It just kind of ties up an issue that may all become an issue in the future. And I think we've discussed this before on this podcast, but when you have more migration, it doesn't exist within a vacuum. It's not additional supply within a vacuum. That actually also adds into demand. So the same people who are already bidding up goods, services, houses most notably, which, uh, funnily enough, the researchers at the Grattan Institute said would cost a lot more by having a lot more migrants coming in, you just add to that demand and all of a sudden prices keep going up if we want to talk about prices spiralling. What it will do, though, and I found this very interesting, uh, is give a lot back in taxes. So that probably explains why policymakers quite <laughs> the idea of getting more migrants to come in. Uh, one suggestion, though, I thought was quite interesting uh, that they put forward was a wage threshold. And Professor Garno endorsed a version of this last night, which essentially would be that you would have a certain wage below which you could not get workers from overseas so essentially you'd have to pay more or you'd have to pay a premium to get workers from overseas to come to Australia as opposed to the current system which I believe there's a list of designated professions which you're allowed to have people come in from overseas and do. So I think that's an interesting idea and I think that would speak to as well concerns that uh, any migrant worker is there to drive down wages. I think that that would be an idea that would be broadly positive and I don't think there would be any good reason why say unions for example uh, would be against that idea. And certainly if businesses are saying that skilled uh, skill shortages are as bad as they are, uh, I think this is certainly a workable way to get past that current issue with the occupations on the list and the designated occupations and some of the uh, red tape around getting people in from overseas uh, that there is at present. Multi-enterprise bargaining agreements. Matthew? Yeah, I've got a lot to say on this one, Jordan, because there is an argument forming um, that industry bargaining agreements or multi-enterprise bargaining agreements uh, will be great, this is one I've heard this week, for reducing the pay gap. Um, and I'm actually concerned that they might increase the pay gap. And I think we need to talk about this. Um, so there's been an argument that they could be used for lower paid caring industries. And of course, one thing I noticed yesterday uh, is that there's a construction forum that's being established. And one of the things they're going to be look at is 
an industry bargaining agreement framework or a multi-enterprise bargaining agreement framework. Uh, so there you go. Seemingly, it won't just be in particular caring industries or industries that have a female-dominated workforce. It could be in other industries too. And of course, that will be precisely what happens. Um, where do you draw the line? Where do you where do you um, cut things off? Will it specifically only be legislated to apply to, say, um, you know, aged care, health and social assistance and things like that? Um, because then people in the resources industry or in construction are going to say, well, we want ours too. Um, and in those cases, they might very well be able to bid up wages quite substantially. So I think um, if we want to, to get into a solution to the pay gap, we need to sort of identify what the cause is. And, and this talk about the industry bargaining agreements or multi-enterprise um, is reflecting the idea um, that, uh, that some industries which are dominated by more women employees... Um, where they have a particular same same level of skill or a job where they have the same skill level as an industry dominated by male employees, but there's a difference in pay between the two. Um, and so that's what the in industry bargaining agreements are, in this case, intended to fix. But let's think about this. Why is a woman in mining paid, paid more than a woman in aged care? It's important we think about this because this is how we start to fix these problems. Well, number one, you're up in a 45-degree day in the desert, in the Pilbara, um, almost getting run over by dump trucks. It's 2,000 kilometres to get home. Now, that's not to say that it's easy doing a 12-hour shift in aged care. That is entirely valid. Um, but you obviously need to pay someone more to be doing FIFO um, than working near where they live um, and to be working in what is a more dangerous environment where there's more injuries um, for, for the workers. Uh, second point is, who pays the bill? If, you work for a, if you're a woman working in the mining industry, ultimately it's a Korean steelmaker or a Japanese or Chinese steelmaker. Um, if you're a woman working in aged care, um, there's probably two main sources of where all the revenue comes from. People's private savings, and this is they've reached the end of their life, they won't be earning any more income, so they're going to be quite scrupulous about how they spend money. And governments, who in this case do have quite an incentive to keep pay low, um, or to keep their spending low, I should say, which results in pay being low. And of course, even when they do increase their spending on these industries or in, in social services, there's never often a clear um, correlation to improved service outcomes either. So that's the second point, who pays the bill. In the resources case, there's probably it's probably easier to bid up wages. And then the third one is the most important, which is the capital intensity. So if you're a woman working as a... Um, uh, a mechanic on a mine site up north and you're uh, fixing a few haul trucks, maybe you're responsible for a fleet of 10 autonomous haul trucks, those haul trucks between them will be producing tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars of revenue every year um, because it's a very, very, very capital-intensive industry. And there's always been a correlation in history between higher capital intensity, higher wages. And then those higher wages in those capital-intensive trade-exposed industries, they pay taxes, and so that money flows through the rest of the economy um, and into other industries where people are not so capital-intensive and it's more labour-intensive, the example perhaps being aged care. Now, someone might make the obvious statement that um, human lives are worth more than haul trucks, which is entirely true, which is why we... Uh, which is why governments prolifically subsidise these sectors because we do value them. The childcare example earlier, aged care, tens of billions of dollars, uh, NDIS or healthcare, tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars every year go into these sectors because we do value them and they are important. Um, so what I am trying to say though is I'm trying to merely identify the problem as to why one of these industries happens to have a higher pay rate than the other one. And so the solution for me, I think, is not saying ah, this industry has more women and this industry has more men, so let's try to 
and bring up the pay in one industry as opposed to the other. What might be a better idea is how do we get more women working in resources? And that's something that the resources companies have been working on. Um, and it's not an easy thing to fix. And as we spoke about earlier with the example of FIFO for a single mum, and you know, how do you deal with the childcare? Um, and this is where the other interesting thing, which I thought was fascinating, and this is where I, I wanted to praise Tesla's Robin Denham, um, because she made the point about technology actually being a solution to improve pay in caring industries. And this is something I've read about a bit before. And this is a fascinating thing that's happening in decades ahead, maybe. Um, and that is that a lot of these sorts of jobs in the resources type industry, the STEM type, type jobs, might become more automated. But you can't ever really automate a, a, a nurse or an aged care person or a person doing a compassion job or a caring job. Very difficult to automate. So there is an argument in the decades ahead that those jobs, there's going to be a lot of demand for labour and there'll be uh, their wages will be improving and it might well be harder to get into a job in the STEM industry, or I shouldn't say into STEM, but you know, working as a mechanic or something like that on a mine site. Um, so ultimately the thought to come to when we talk about technology is think about that nurse. Earlier this year I wrote about how um, spending on healthcare in WA had tripled over about 15 years and I spoke to a nurse who said that I think it was about 40% of her day was administrative tasks and bureaucratic tasks. How can we use technology to make her job less stressful? How can we use technology so that she doesn't have to do those administrative and bureaucratic tasks all day, and it's the same for teachers and others? How can we um, support them to be in a less stressful work environment? Because you know what? If you can use technology to improve the capability of a nurse and uh, to, or, or an aged care worker to um, deal with issues more quickly and have less issues to deal with, uh, you, then you can start to increase their pay quite substantially. And it might well be a situation where they have a much less stressful job where they manage potentially a couple more patients or more patients, um, but they're less intensively managing each patient because t technology is doing a lot more of the work. And then, of course, you'd be able to offer a very significant 20 or 30% pay rise over a period of time. And the example I just think of, if you ever go to a hospital and you listen to those saline drips that the alarms are constantly going off and nurses have to run around and fix them and rarely do they ever indicate an actual problem in the line. Quite often they're just going off with alarms. In what ways can we use technology to resolve that problem? I imagine it would make nurses' lives a lot easier, Jordan. So something to think about. But I loved what Robin said about using technology in caring industries. Here's hoping my newfound appreciation for Jobs and Skills Summits uh, carries on through to the end of this summit and uh, that we see some great results that we can celebrate in the years ahead. In the meantime, Matt, thank you so much for your economic analysis. I appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners do. To get more, uh, head online now to businessnews.com.au and make sure that you tune in to Mark My Words, which, as always, is our this afternoon as well. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for your job and skill of hosting the podcast. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.